I'm Talmadge Boston. Welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leaders and best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Dr. Henry Kissinger, one of my heroes, about his new book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy, which came out July the 5th, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a Zoom audience for the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth on October 21st, 2022. Enjoy. think of the history of diplomacy and statecraft, a common name comes to mind, Henry Kissinger. The name comes with the idea of shaking up old patterns and relationships across the globe and pioneering a strategy of innovative diplomacy. We are thrilled today to be joined by one of the most influential people in modern American history. This afternoon, we, we are discussing Dr. Kissinger's new book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy, and we'll fit in some of those other current world events as well. Hello and welcome. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Welcome to our virtual program featuring Dr. Henry Kissinger, moderated by Talmadge Boston. It's not the first time we've had Dr. Kissinger. The first was in 2013 when we hosted him in person here in Dallas. And as a matter of fact, Talmadge was the moderator during that program as well. So gentlemen, welcome. And we'll get you on screen in just a moment. I want to thank many the many organizations that partnered with us today for the program, including the Dallas Regional Chamber, Global Ties US, Global Santa Fe, Locklord LLC, Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton LLP, and several members of the World Affairs Council network from across the nation. We thank you. And last, I want to thank our institutional partners, NEC Corporation of America and Lockheed Martin. A reminder to our viewers that you can purchase signed book plate copies of Dr. Kissinger's book in leadership six studies in world strategy online right now through our partner at Interabang Bookstore. Go to interabangbooks.com, pardon me, interabangbooks.com to order from this fantastic bookstore partner of ours. And those who pre-purchase their copies when registering for this webinar will be receiving them in the mail shortly if you've not already. So, Speaking of membership, if you're not a member of the World Affairs Council, please do join us. I'd love to see you at our virtual and in-person events, mostly in person these days, but I'd love to welcome you to our community of engaged citizens. It means a lot to me, so please do join us. You can visit our website at dfworld.org. That's dfworld.org for more information. We have hundreds of students and teachers joining us today from across North Texas. The, the Council's Global Young Leaders Program provides essential opportunities for educators and students to engage with our programming, and we're really happy to have you with us. And I must thank Linda and Richard Schaefer for your generous support of the GYL program, the Global Young Leaders Program. I want to tell you about a couple of programs we have upcoming quickly 
uh, I'll tell you quickly, on Monday, October 24th, join us for a panel program on the future of war fighting with former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Michelle Flournoy, Lieutenant General John Jack Shanahan, and Rear Admiral Norman Hayes. Our panelists will discuss America's military strategy for the future and the role of intelligence in new technology like AI. We hope you'll join us for this fascinating discussion and it's presented in partnership with Raytheon and UTD. On Wednesday, the 26th, join us for the Gail Kotman History Lecture featuring beloved UT Austin professor Jeremy Surrey on his new book, A Civil War by Other Means. Following the general program that evening, members of the council's contributors circle will have the opportunity to join Dr. Surrey for a private dinner. So check out our website for that. And thank you very much to Ed and Catherine Kotman, as well as Sharon David Jacobs for your sponsorship, making this program possible. Again, go to dfwworld.org to register for these and other events. Okay, so a quick reminder, ask questions during this program and you can do that with your Q&A boxes at the bottom of your screens and our moderator will get to as many as he can and he'll weave them throughout the conversation when appropriate. Okay, now for our esteemed guest today. Henry Kissinger was born in Germany and came to the US in 1938, serving in the US Army's 84th Infantry, Infantry Division during World War II. After his military service, he received his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees from Harvard and later served on faculty. In 1969, Dr. Kissinger became assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. In 73, he was sworn in as Secretary of State under President Nixon and continued in the role until uh, under President Ford. Dr. Kissinger is arguably one of the most important foreign policy theorists ever produced by the United States, directly overseeing the opening of diplomatic relations with China and easing hostility with the Soviet Union. Among the many awards he has received for his work are the Nobel Peace Prize, the Medal of Liberty, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In short, Dr. Kissinger's accomplishments are indeed the stuff of which history is made. The author of several books himself, his latest highlights include six famous figures and their leadership strategies, which we'll discuss today. The book is truly a sign of his extraordinary experience as a diplomat, given that each of the leaders are someone he has known personally. Now I'd like to introduce our moderator and our moderator Talmadge Boston, a good friend of the council, past board member and current member, uh, is the author of four history books himself, two on baseball history, one on legal history, and one on presidential history with a new one that will uh, come out next fall. He's also a commercial litigation partner in the Dallas office of the Shackleford, Shackleford Law Firm, who has been using his cross-examination skills to do onstage interviews of public figures and best-selling authors for the last 15 years. Wow, we have two fabulous speakers with us. And with that, Talmadge, I'll let you take it from here. Thanks again, gentlemen. Great, thank you, Liz. Uh, welcome, Dr. Kissinger. Glad to have you back in the scope of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, your wonderful new book uh, on leadership. You have many biographies. Can of I see six, what your screenshot? 
six leaders, uh, Conrad Adenauer of Germany, Charles de Gaulle of France, Richard Nixon from the United States, Anwar Sadat from Egypt, Lee Kuan Yew from Singapore, and Margaret Thatcher from Great Britain. And you say you chose them because they were, quote, the architects of the post-war evolution of their societies and the international order. And they, quote, redefined national purposes, opened up new vistas, and contributed a new structure to a world in transition. So why were these the standards that you use for choosing the six leaders? Oh, I, um, I've been observing leaders and participating with them. And I first wanted to to write an abstract book on leadership of what the qualities were. But then it seemed to me that the best, better way to describe it is to give six illustrations of people who led their country at specific turning points and the qualities that were needed at that time and then synthesize them in a concluding chapter. And so this book arose through that process. All right, the first chapter is on Konrad Adenauer, who was the first chancellor of the Federal Republic of Germany and led his nation from 1949 to 1963. And you say he did it using a strategy of humility. In the years following the defeat of the Nazis in World War II, he met the challenge to return Germany to the international order. So how was his continued demonstration of humility essential for Germany's return post-World War to respectability, influence, and integration in the international order? In 1945, at the end of the war, Germany was as devastated as one could imagine an advanced country to be. The cities were in ruin. The moral standing of Germany was at an absolute nadir. Uh, I served in Germany uh, with the 84th Infantry Division of the United States. And so we, we went through town after town. And I was in an intelligence job, which had a focus on the civilian population. And so communications were down. And in all, in this atmosphere, uh, in which there was no central government, it took until 1947 until the central government was established. And Adnauer became a chancellor by one vote. Uh, the parliament voted on by uh, one vote. And he found a country that was divided. Russia had occupied the eastern part of the country, and uh, 
with the communication system down and the four allies occupying different parts of Germany. In that atmosphere, he established his uh, position as chancellor, but he had to get his people to accept these circumstances. And he had the allies to get to recognize Germany as an equal and to forget about what had happened during the war. So he adopted what I call the strategy of humility, accepting the petition of Germany, uh, acting as actor, as a chancellor of West Germany, and emphasizing, above all, democratic values and, and institutions. And a debate in Parliament when there were some objections, he shouted out, who do you think lost the war? And made it clear that this was a duty now they had to carry out. And he brought Germany back into the community of nations. And he established and strengthened democratic institutions. And one of the high points of his career was when he was invited to Washington and uh, went to the tomb of the unknown soldier and later reads, and the German national anthem was played by an American military band. And he described that in his memoirs as saying that tears were streaming down our faces. Uh, because we had reached a turning point in, in our history. And, and then he shepherded Germany through the blockade of Berlin, the Russian ultimatums on Berlin. Uh, and it can be said that for about 50 years, Afterwards, every chancellor followed substantially his line. Uh, but he, while he was a very strong leader for his country, he was satisfied with his subordinate position at the beginning and tried to establish principles and succeeded of reliability and democracy. One of the most compelling parts of the Adenauer chapter was his response to the Jews in Israel, who of course had been the victims of the Holocaust, and how Adenauer, with his position of humility and humanity, uh, responded to them. So tell our audience about... Uh, well, he... he uh, believed that 
that Germany owed Israel owed the Jewish community a restitution for the suffering that had been inflicted. And more than the suffering, the casualties, the killing that had been imposed on them. And so he, the German parliament, uh, passed a substantial uh, bill of restitution and the German government established a system where people who were expelled from their jobs received some restitution uh, for what, what they lost in that period and uh, to pay to, to such a, to make such, such expenses at a time when Germany was still suffering from the depression imposed by the destruction in the war was a very courageous act and a difficult act both practically and institutionally. Now your second chapter is on Charles de Gaulle, the leader of France from 44 to 46, and then from 58 to 69, you say led his country with a strategy of will. You say that he, quote, sustained his legendary status, stature, by cloaking himself in mystery. And thus it was challenging to find the colossus behind the veil. So describe the colossus of Charles de Gaulle that you discerned after you pierced the veil and saw beyond the mystique. Charles de Gaulle was in 1940 the lowest ranking brigadier general in the French army. In fact, when the war started, he wasn't a general yet. That start, he was made a general in May 1940 during the German offensive against France. But then when France surrendered and made a formal treaty of surrender with Germany, he fled to Britain without money, without the language, without any position from which he could claim leadership, and proclaimed himself the leader of a moral cause, and that cause was the restitution of the French experiences in the history of greatness. And Churchill summed up the God's position at the beginning by saying, you are alone and we are alone, so we might as well work together. But even though they all worked together, and even though he depended totally on Britain, 
he did not accept any gifts and he undertook from the beginning to repay everything that was given to him at the end of the war. So he was became conceived as extremely difficult. And that is certainly true. And it was certainly my personal experience with him. But one always had to remember that at every step of the way, he had to reestablish a totally defeated country as a still significant, or having a still significant existence. And he took over when, when France collapsed. The communists were the largest party. The resistance movement was at the military arms. And they all came in with the allies. And the French people didn't even know what he looked like, the television not being in existence. And in his first encounter with them, they were focused on his being a very tall person. But then he established, established a democratic government and a very strategic foreign policy. But after less than a year in office, he resigned because he thought that the parliamentarians were passing a resolution, a constitution whose provisions would make it very difficult to govern France in the manner it should be governed. So he was out of office for 13 years and then was recalled when the colonial problems became unmanageable and he let go of Algeria, which had legally been a French province. And uh, so, and one can say today that decades after his death, the foreign policy of France and the conduct of their diplomats reflects many of the key lessons of de Gaulle. As an individual, he had this quality of assertion. But in the great crisis which faced the Allies, like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, former Secretary of State uh, <clears throat> Atchison had been sent to brief him by Kennedy to brief him on the nature of the power situation. And, the, and he would send around Europe with a briefing team 
And at the end of his presentation to the various leaders, he said, my briefing team is willing to give you all the details. They all accepted with alacrity, except the goal. The goal said, when a great ally acts in an hour of need, we do not act like police reporters. And if you tell us you're doing this for your safety, for your security, and the security of the world, you have our support. Uh, and he never looked at the briefing. And then later during the uh, ultimatum of the Soviet Union on Berlin Access, I would say he was the staunchest in his opposition of all the allies. So he had this dual personality of reconstructing his country and uh, morally, while at the same time reestablishing it physically as a fundamental member of the international system. Uh, there are many irritating things he did, like when President Roosevelt wanted to stop in Algeria on the way back from a conference. But from uh, an international conference, uh, when he, when De Gaulle refused him to land in Algeria because, because he wanted to establish the principle that a foreign country could not simply announce a visit of its president on French soil without, without talking to the president. So it's a whole series of events which irritated many of his contemporaries. But he was a tremendous figure who, who can be said to current France reflected his personality and the current constitution of France was worked out by him and his staff. Uh, so, okay. well, your, your book really opened my eyes to what a great leader he was. I really did not have near the appreciation I needed to. So I really appreciate your insights on that. Your third chapter is on the only American leader, Richard Nixon, whose foreign policy you say was guided by the strategy of equilibrium. Now, you served under Nixon uh, throughout his presidency, as first as his national security advisor and then secretary of state. And uh, you all had a partnership in this historic foreign policy that together you pursued. Now, in the most recent C-SPAN presidential ranking poll that came out in 2021, where all 150 voters in that poll are esteemed historians, Nixon ranked 31st out of 44. So my question is, but for the Watergate fiasco, which caused Nixon to resign in August 1974, where do you think historians would rank Nixon? 
I think Nixon, the night before Nixon formally retired, he invited me to do his study. And we talked about his historic role, or his role in history. And I said to him that history will treat you more kindly than your contemporaries did. And that has proved to be true, because there were undoubtedly mistakes made on the domestic side that led to his retirement. Uh, but if you consider that when he came into office, uh, the Soviet Union had just occupied Czechoslovakia, that the we had that 500,000 American troops were in Vietnam, that the President of the United States then, President Johnson, could not appear in public except on army bases because the riots that were then going on for a variety of reasons. And that Nixon took over all of these problems ended the Vietnam War on honorable terms, opened to China and thereby created an alternative in our foreign policy for the, which have been the Soviet Union and as a demonstration to the American people that America had creative ideas. So, I treat Nixon as having put American foreign policy on a basis that could be checked against the American national interest and that avoided the oscillations between uh, excessive optimism and a kind of isolationism. And uh, I, I would sum it up even today, especially today, in having a Nixonian inspiration. Uh, we are having some trouble today balancing uh, the Soviet Union and China against each other. Uh, but the basic Nixonian principle was to achieve this, and it was achieved in its administration and in many administrations afterwards. So, One of the most controversial aspects of the Nixon presidency was his process for getting U.S. troops out of Vietnam in that it took so long. Looking back with 2020 hindsight, is there any aspect of our withdrawal that you think we should have done differently? Uh, 
Griechen the United States had 500,000 troops in China, in the Vietnam, that were put there by the previous administration. And they had been there for nearly 10 years, and there had been no progress in diplomacy, and it seemed like an endless war. There was great impatience by people to withdraw troops. But Nixon's judgment was that if you withdrew the troops and, and the 30,000 casualties that had been incurred would appear to be totally wasted. The American ability to be to make other countries have faith in our capacity to determine to defend them would go away. And so he went through a painful process uh, of gradual withdrawal. When he came in, as I said, there were five hundred thousand in place, 50,000 were on the way to 550,000 altogether. Three years afterwards, there were only 25,000 Americans in Vietnam, and the defense of Vietnam was conducted largely by, almost exclusively, by Vietnamese ground forces with assistance from American air power, that, that the casualties had dropped in the same in the same proportion. That enabled him to achieve an agreement in which the communists recognized the government of South Vietnam which is the issue on which the war had started in the first place. We failed in the end as a country because as a result of Watergate and domestic divisions, economic aid to Vietnam was sharply reduced. Military aid was eliminated in certain categories and in all categories was inadequate. And then a law was passed by the Congress prohibiting American military action in, over, or near Vietnam. And that had the, the process, the result that we ran short of the forces we packed. We were running short of ammunition and of firepower in in general. And Vietnam collapsed militarily. Uh, it was it was one of the turning points uh, and. In the in the policy in the policy of the period, 
ended in inaugurated several years of tensions and several Middle East wars, which would not have happened if the United States' capacity to impose its preferences had not been impaired so severely. One of the greatest things that you and Nixon accomplished <clears throat> is what, and tied to the chapter title, this equilibrium, uh, this uh, linkage of political and military issues in order to achieve detente. And as I read about triangle diplomacy that you and he masterminded, I had this image of three-dimensional chess, but because we're dealing in a world where there's nuclear warfare, it's also high-stakes poker because you have to be a great bluffer in the very nuanced threats that are made. So, so Give us your overview of triangular uh, diplomacy and, and why in, in a world that we live in, uh, it's necessary in order to achieve a balance of power. Well, when you, when you have two communist adversaries, uh, it's in your interest to that face them both simultaneously in military action. Uh, it's a principle I fear we are violating at this moment. But the <laughs> when Nixon came into office, China was considered irreconcilable enemy. And we uh, had to prepare for confrontation all around the globe. And at that time, we considered the Soviet Union the, more, the principal enemy. And we had a briefing that there was some military conflict on the Chinese-Russian border between the Chinese and the Russians. And we decided that in our diplomacy, we would lean towards the weaker, even though the uh, we had no relations with China whatsoever, but we wanted to prevent the balance of power in the world from being from being overturned. And so when after we opened to China, Russian policy became much more conciliatory and much less confrontational. But our basic principle was that we should always be closer to either of them than they were to each other, so that we always had a greater bargaining position. And from then, faster then, we could achieve a decisive position in the Middle East conflicts, 
and repel several uh, attacks, one on Jordan in 1971 and another one in 73 when there was a war on the whole system in the region and lead that process towards peace agreements that are still maintained uh, today. So Nixon marked a turning point in our history from a very difficult position. It was obscured by the domestic crisis that ended his presidency, which I always considered a great national tragedy. Uh, but and therefore, I was honored to include him in this book uh, of leading statesmen and contribute to a broader assessment of his uh, abilities and contribution than was the case before. One, a member of our audience has a question related to what you've been talking about in terms of China as to the way it was <clears throat> while you were the national security advisor and, and the way it is now. <clears throat> if you were uh, Secretary of State now uh, attempting to invoke triangular diplomacy, uh, what would you do different uh, to try to bring things back into balance? The, I don't want to make this a personal issue because every administration faces changing conditions that have resulted from the evolution of events. Uh, but my, my basic judgment has been that we that if we engage in simultaneous hostility with both of these countries, uh, then we have no great options of flexibility. And there's a great danger that a war situation can arise in two places at once in different parts of the world with different constituencies, putting an enormous strain on our resources and on our and on our leadership. Uh, I, I say that as a general principle, but I have supported the administration in their actions in Ukraine. Uh, and so it's, it's an issue that has to be looked at from the evolution of where it, where it arrived at it. And the basic mistakes in Ukraine were made actually in previous administrations 
when the issue of you you uh, of membership in the in the in NATO for Ukraine was put forward, and that was a really profound challenge to to Russia. Uh, but when Russia tried to overturn this by a sudden attack on trying to incorporate uh, Ukraine back into Russia, uh, that was a challenge which needed to be resisted. And I agree with the policy that brought us to this point on the resistance. But I think the point is now being reached where diplomatic options need to be brought into play so that it, the war doesn't get out of hand uh, and become a global conflict. And the next uh, chapter is on Anwar Sadat, president of Egypt from 1970 to 81, who won the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize in 1978. And you say he led his nation using the strategy of transcendence. By that, you say he transcended ideologies that for decades had contorted the Middle East and bled Egypt dry, and he made bold and unexpected moves calculated to serve a larger strategic objective. So what were the most important aspects of how Sadat went about achieving this type of transcendence? When Sadat became president, when President Nasser had a heart attack and and disappeared unexpectedly. And I think it is safe to say that, Na that Sadat was put into office as vice president because Nasser thought that he was the least threatening of all the possible candidates and therefore the safest from the point of view of, of his future. So Sadat inherited a set of policies that he wanted to change, but he had to move at first very carefully. But he had one deep insight, which was that the underlying cause of the conflict between Arabs and Jews in the region was a philosophical one, it's almost a spiritual one, and that he had to create a new basis of some common faith in the future. So he went to Jerusalem unexpectedly. No Arab leader had visited Jerusalem. No Arab leader recognized that the state existed. And he went to Jerusalem and made 
number of beautiful speeches expressing that conviction. And he went on beyond that to make a formal peace treaty, which means that he recognized the permanent existence of Israel and he encouraged negotiations along this line in other parts of the Middle East. When one looks back on it, on it uh, I had the honor of not getting to know him quite well. When I first encountered him, or I didn't admit, met him yet, before I met him, he was sort of, a, I described him once as a, a character out of Aida, the opera of Aida, because he seemed to be making a lot of grandiloquent statements and at that time had not taken any action. But then he did this huge jump of saying, this is not a practical context. This is a spiritual context. And I have to uplift my society. But that's when he went beyond the toleration of the religious views of the uh, of the period, and he became he appeared as a heretic, and he and he was assassinated. It's a tragedy because his inside was correct, and whenever it has been implemented, like by subsequent agreements with Egypt then with the United Arab Republic, uh, we progress is being made. But the radicals in the region have rejected it, and we're now heading into serious issues with especially Iranian nuclear weapons. The next chapter, and mindful of our time, uh, is on Lee Kuan Yew, who led Singapore from 1959 to 1990, a very small nation and not many people, didn't have any basic natural resources, and yet he turned it into a world-class economy by executing what you call the strategy of excellence. So explain his commitment to excellence and how he instilled it into the national consciousness of Singapore citizens? Well, Singapore has a population now of about 3 million. Uh, when it was founded, it had about a million and a half. Its territory was uh, that of a small island, and Lee Kuan Yew used to say it's whatever the number is at low tide. At high tide, it was smaller. It had three different ethnic groups, Indians, Malays, and Chinese. It was surrounded by much more powerful uh, nations. And they didn't speak the same language. So when Lee Kuan Yew became president, uh, he decided that the only asset he had 
was the quality of his people. And that therefore, if he made his people live up to the limit of their capacities, they would do astounding things of economic well-being. When he was a young man, the per capita income of India, of Singapore, was 60000 uh, $60, dollars a year. Today it is 60,000. 60, At that time it was 600. And it went from 600 to over 60,000 today. And Lee Kuan Yew, in the process, also developed views about the relationship between China and the United States, with this country being placed between these two countries of appealing to both of these countries on principles of coexistence. So when Lee Kuan Yew came to Washington, he was, which he did about once a year, he was a well-received guest and the president and secretary of state invariably uh, saw him for long discussions. And it's an astonishing act of creativity amidst great uh, turmoil. Yeah, I, I was really inspired reading the chapter on, uh, on on Mr. Liu because I didn't know that much about him, and, and what an amazing record. The last chapter is on Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, Prime Minister of Great Britain from 79 to 90, the first female prime minister. And you say she led her nation through a strategy of conviction. How did her convictions exceed those of her peers and how was that instrumental in fueling her rise? When I met Margaret Thatcher, uh, uh, I met Margaret Thatcher because of my wife. My wife was at been in England to write something about the educational system, and Margaret Thatcher was. Uh, education minister, and Nancy wrote me and said, this woman is fantastic. You ought to meet her. But I had no obvious reason to meet her because of the subject matter of her, her field. Anyway, when I finally did meet her, she had been made leaders of the Conservative Party. And I, at that time, it was conventional wisdom that in order to win an election, you have to win the middle ground and to place yourself in such a way. So I asked her that question, how are you going to gain the middle ground? She said, I have absolutely no intention of gaining the middle ground. Uh, I think if you fight for the middle ground, you're destroying democracy. My job as party leader is to put forward my convictions. 
And if I put forward my convictions in a plausible and understandable and clear way, the middle ground will move to me. And that's what I'm about. And I've thought, sadly, this moment when a prime minister in England was pushed out after three weeks in office, very few weeks in office. Uh, this could never have happened to Margaret Thatcher. She, that would have been a horrendous struggle to, to attempt. But she, it never happened to her, even though she introduced different economic principles compared to, the, to her predecessors. Uh, she won four elections, which is very rare in, in, British, in British history. And one of her basic principles was fundamental friendship with the United States. And she gave a special relationship, which Churchill proclaimed uh, a, a new thing a new significance. And she was also personally, she was, they called her the Iron Lady, which she was personally, or could be very charming and warm, but she knew what she stood for. And so, uh, she provided a reference point when the Argentine government took the Falkland Islands, which were a British set of islands off the coast of South America. It was the conviction of every military expert in the world that nothing could be done about that. But Margaret Thatcher said well, she had no particular interest in the Falkland Islands, but she said, you cannot simply permit countries to impose their will by military force and remain a country that's useful for alliances. Well, one of the fascinating things about uh, her leadership was her relationship with Reagan. Uh, you say in the book that they had a true partnership, that she was the only person outside the United States to whom Reagan listened, and that she acted as if Britain was on a par with the United States, and Reagan went along with her. So as I read all that, do you think she actually dominated him, or were they 50-50 partners, or how do you size up that relationship? I she she understood him. She understood that Reagan had a deep conviction about the role of the United States internationally. And so she recognized him as a leader of the international system. And she, from a weaker position in Britain, uh, she uh, managed to convince him.
on on some of the uh, fundamental problems. But that was possible because Reagan essentially agreed with her and, and sort of ad admired her spunky quality. So it was a sort of ideal relationship in which the President of the United States uh, was able to learn from the experiences of a country that had just lost its imperial position. And Britain, in turn, could maintain a position of self-respect and partnership. It was a great partnership between two substantial individuals. Dr. Kissinger, I want to thank you so much. I want to apologize to the people who submitted questions. Our hour, uh, unfortunately, is up. I felt like we needed to get through all six of the leaders. I hope this has been uh, as informative to the audience as it certainly was to me. I saw we had 300 people in Zoom, which is a world record for me. I'd now like to turn the program over back to Liz Brailsford, who's the CEO of the World Affairs Council. Thank you so much. Thank you for the manner in which you conducted this. And I had a good time talking to you, as I did the last time I was here. Thank you so much for an excellent discussion. And Dr. Kissinger, you are a wealth of knowledge and I am in absolute true awe of your mind. So thank you very much for joining us. I just wanna remind everyone in our audience, our wide audience that Talmadge mentioned that you can purchase signed copies of Dr. Kissinger's book in leadership, six studies in world strategy online right now through our bookstore partner, Interabang Books. You can go to interabangbooks.com to order from this fantastic bookstore and grab your copy today. And if you're not a member of our council yet, please join us. We'd love to have you be a member. Go to dfwworld.org to become a member. And with that, Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Kissinger. Thank you, Talmadge. And thank you to our audience for joining us and taking the time on this Friday afternoon. We'll see you next time. Henry Kissinger knows more about international affairs and diplomacy than anyone. He's also a terrific writer. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember... As my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.